0: Good morning Mendocino County and beyond. You are listening to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak. I bring you this program every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. Have been doing so for so for many years. Good morning. Uh, today we're going to be talking about two topics. My first guest is uh, Catherine Stockton and we're going to be Talking about genders, her her book, Genders, and it's going, all going to be about why gender is strange and even when it's played straight and how race and money are two of its most dramatic ingredients, it's going to be a fascinating discussion. And then at 9.30, I'm going to be joined by Andrea Press and we're going to be talking about Media Ready Feminism and Everyday Sexism. So as you can tell, if you're a long-time listener, an, another program with uh, the with, uh, with diversity of topics. Um, but the two pro- the two topics that we're going to be talking about today sort of go together, in a sense. And so uh, I'm hoping you'll stay tuned for the whole hour. I know we're going to get competition at 9.30 with uh, President Biden's uh, speech with, with uh, Chief Justice Breyer to announce his retirement. But uh, maybe you can watch and listen to us at the same time this morning. Well, now I'd like to... To welcome Catherine von Stockton to Wild Oak Living. I'm so honored that you're joining us this morning. Uh, as I told you earlier, I got up at 4.30 this morning to reread your your small but incre- Im- amazingly dense book, <laughs> in term, and it brings me so many aha moments uh, every time. Every sentence is filled with discovery. Uh, I'd like to let you know that Catherine von Stockton is Distinguished Professor of English and Inaugural Dean of-, Dean of the School for Cultural and Social Transformation at the University of Utah. She is the author of Beautiful Bottom, Beautiful Shame, Where Black Meets Queer, the Queer Child, or Growing Sideways in the 20th Century. Both of those are finalists for the Lambda Literally Award in LGBT Studies and Making Out finalist for the Next Generation Indie Book Award for Memoir, among other books. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Catherine von Stockton.
1: Hello, Johanna. It's just a pleasure to be with you. And you are joining us from Yes, I am from my kitchen, <laughs> right near the <laughs> University of Utah. Oh,
0: great! You know, we were just we were chatting a bit before we went on the air um, about about your work and how you've been doing this this work for your entire academic career, and just you know, not to show you know, or maybe to show my sort of. Uh, preconceived notions. I was a bit surprised to, to learn that you're doing your work at the University of Utah, which, which you know, Utah is a fairly red state. And and I'm, I'm just wondering, how did you get into this work? What is it like doing this
1: work at the University of Utah? Yes, so I've been um, at the U f- since 1987, so for quite a long time. And I grew up on the East Coast in Connecticut and did my schooling in a very short radius, as sometimes happens, University of Connecticut, Yale, Brown, and then had this offer at the University of Utah, along with many offers on the East Coast, but I couldn't get Utah out of my mind. I just thought, what a fascinating place to go and do what I need to do, which is to talk about feminism, you know, to meet gay kids and see what's going on in their lives and to go to a place where I felt like maybe I might be needed. I kind of didn't feel like New York City needed me or San Francisco Um, at the time. I felt those bases are covered. But I felt Salt Lake City was a place where these conversations needed to happen. And one thing I will say is that Salt Lake is actually a very blue city, you know, in a very red state, which is not so unusual um, in our country. But I was excited to go to a place where I knew people would disagree with me. And I felt particularly to go to a place that had a religion that is a very sort of United States, you know, based religion would also be a really interesting context for talking about feminism Life, because the word "queer" was not yet being used in that affirmative way in 1987.
0: And this is this is actually um, a really um, was was sort of my my first my first startling moment, and that's sort of the, the, the sub the subtitle or actually what um, says on the back of your uh, um, um, the 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 of gender and queer yes. uh, in words yeah, yeah let's talk a bit about that because uh, uh, before, I want to get into talking about you know gender and sex mm-hmm. and race and all mm-hmm. of those things but but a startling
1: moment that you're that how you juxtapose those two yes so for the reader of my book they'll have to get used to the fact that I'm using queer in at least two ways always in the book and if you just look it up in the dictionary it'll be all status about LGBT T, Q, I, right? So the ways that we might think about gay and trans specifically. But I also want that second definition that you'll find in the dairy range. Every one of us. So even though your impetus for reading the book might be, I know somebody who's non-binary, I know somebody who's queer or trans, or I myself are queer or trans, and I want to understand these issues better, I think the reader comes to the book thinking that their gender is normative, maybe the person who gets the biggest surprise of all, which is to say there's something about conventional gendering that is also really strange. How might we understand that? Talk more about that. Yeah. So, you know, I begin the book, as you know, with a, the with a line, prepare to enter a story that is yours because if you think about it, gender is intimate to each and every one of us, right? Gender is no more intimate to a trans person than it is to somebody who doesn't identify as trans or to a straight person in relationship to a gay person. And so in some ways, I want the reader to say to themselves, how would I say what gender is? This thing that has formed me since my birth, when I was sexed with the word and told that I was a boy or a girl, that has influenced each and every one of our lives so deeply. So what is this concept? How has it formed us? What actually is the history of the concept? And why might we say that race and money are actually in our gender? So that we can't think of gender on its own, but must always think about relationship to these other terms that touch it so deeply.
0: I've just been told that our video link is is a bit spotty, so I'm going to be turning off my video. Okay, shall I do that as well? Actually, I I love I love being okay. able to see you, but I think I'm, I'm going to stop my gotcha. video. Okay, I Hopefully, hopefully that will improve things. Um, so, um, the the question that I wanted to. Address in this context that you just described is is, and and you actually um, this is actually also something that that is in your little YouTube YouTube video that you did with uh, with um, your publicist. you know, it starts as you just said. It starts with the with the baby's sex. You know, when a baby is born, mm-hmm. is is it a boy? Is it a girl? Even when I walk my my dog, I mean, <laughs> not, you know, not is it a boy or right, a girl? Right, People always want people always <laughs> want to know, you know, what a gender is. You 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 push a baby carriage through, and unless you have
1: yes, a rescue, yes, you know? it's so true. It's so true.
0: And and so um this whole this but but in reading your book what i'm learning is is that it, that's that's just there, there's sort of the external um sex characteristics mm-hmm. um and and those are the ones we tend to focus on most mm-hmm. but but that's just one aspect right there's many more yes. layers to that yes. i'm
1: wondering if you could explore that a bit Absolutely. So one way to to think about things, and again, you can tell I'm, a as an English professor, always going to the dictionary. You know, it would be simple, I always say, if sex and gender just would keep to their dictionary definitions. So the dictionary basically says sex is biological, linked to genitals, and that gender is cultural, which would seem to make sex a kind of biological genital anchor to gender's more cultural expressions, right? Culture meaning behavior, dress, mindset. But as you yourself just alluded to, Johanna, uh, what causes trouble for that clarity is that there are actually five fetal layers to a baby's sex, and only one of which we see, and that, of course, is the newborn's genitals. So we're not seeing the other four layers of sex chromosomes, gonads, fetal hormones, internal reproductive structures, which, by the way, may disagree with each other. And based on that one layer that we see, as we all know, we shout at birth, it's a boy, it's a girl. Interestingly enough, we don't say it's a male, it's a female. So right from the get-go, we're using a gender word, boy or girl, for the newborn sex, which means that culture in the form of a word with its massive connotations, right, lowered almost like a cone over the baby, is already of a sex that we ourselves have simplified. So in many ways, culture is driving our view of biology. And in, I try to explain, that throughout
0: the book yeah unfortunately i think i might have to ask you to turn off your video as well okay i think it seems our connection is a bit stable okay enjoy seeing you (laughs) it's almost like having you in the studio (laughs) i know but but i think we need to give priority we will go with voices yes exactly exactly um so so we have these we have these layers that that you just mm-hmm. described and 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 as you said w- what we don't see may not always correspond with what with what we do see and it's interesting one thing you one thing you also mention in your book is this interesting contradiction of um, and I don't know if I'm using your terms or not but this um, this trend in in the in the youngest generation in the younger generation now towards a certain degree of gender fluidity yes. Um, and 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 at the same time,
1: this explosion in gender reveal parties. Right, right. So it seems like two things are happening simultaneously. And maybe this paradox is not so surprising. But just in this moment where there seems to be a lot of gender experimentation, uh, a kind of explosion of the different ways that we might think about and talk about our gender, even some parents out there deciding not to sex their child at birth, right along with that is the gender reveal party which I wonder if at the base of the gender reveal party is a kind of wish for sex and gender to be as simple as we sometimes uh, mistakenly think that it is. So that you just do the kind of aha, you have your cake, you slice it open, there's pink, there's blue, this is what I'm having. But of course, one of the things that you'll notice is it's funny that it's called a gender reveal party, right? Because it would seem like how, how can the baby yet have any cultural expression of its gender it just came out of the womb or it's actually still baking <laughs> inside the body right, right. so it seems like, like, it seems like seems like that misnomer gender driving our view of sex it could be just too that to say I'm having a sex reveal party in relationship to a baby, sounds weird just on the surface of it. (laughs) So it could be that because that word sex is used both for what we think of as biological sex and then also sex acts, that that made the idea of a sex reveal party uh, sound strange in relationship to a baby's body. But nonetheless, I think it is interesting that Gender again is the term being used, and one last thing I'll say about that: if you think about it, you we all may understand that um, our genitals are almost magnets, right, for gender mythology. Think of how many gender mythologies stick to our genitals, and I would say also highly. So I think that's fascinating about how. Several things are happening in our culture at once: a real desire to stabilize sex and gender in in very sort of old and outdated ways, and a kind of celebration and embrace of all the ways that gender is changing um, in our midst.
0: Yeah, it's such a fascinating. Do do I mean? Actually, I was going to save this question for for the end of our interview, but, but since I'm thinking about it now and I might forget later, do you sort of foresee a future when? When uh, sex and maybe gender is, is no longer plays a sort of immediate role in terms of associating everybody with one or the other or or somewhere in between. Yes, I think we're
1: actually right with young people. I think again, often our hope is with youth, and youth are creating all these new terminologies. If you had asked me as an act- academic, the term non-binary, which felt like a very academic term that, I, again, I had used going back to 1987. If you told me that was going to catch on to the general public, I would not have said that that will. So many of the changes that we've already seen, I didn't think that change would come so quickly. And given there are more and more deciding not to sex their children at birth, to wait until the child becomes a speaking person to see what the child might say about itself i think that will produce further change never mind all this we are very likely to see people uh, doing things with their hair with their clothing that may be possible for us to have a stabilized notion of who that person uh, may are uh, true of myself as well in many ways so, yes, I think those changes have already come. I believe they're going to intensify. However, as we've seen with race, there will be backlash. And we're seeing that now as well
0: about race and also money which are two of the t- t- topics you know that are that 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 you discuss in, in the context of, of gender and sex let me just take a moment that, so that you are listening to Wild Oak Living here on KZY and Decino County Public Broadcasting. This is Johanna Wild Oak. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 AM and today, my first guest here on this program is Catherine Bon Stapton she distinguished professor of english and inaugural dean of the school for cultural and social transformation at the university of utah and she has written a fascinating book called nets gender and then open uh, open parenthesis s uh, close parenthesis uh, and it's it it says on the back of the book a sentence that i find really interesting why gender is strange even when it's played straight and how race and dramatic ingredients. So let's talk about race and money, maybe if not together or separate. However, you would like to do that, uh, and how they play
1: into gender. Absolutely. So we think about it, right? The terms "man" and "woman" do not confess their racialized histories in this country, and I think probably all of us would agree that since the thirteen colonies, we have as a country you know, made legal and often biological distinctions, however bogus, between at least six categories. So, white man, white woman, black man, black woman, native man, native woman. These categories go back to the founding of our country and then joined, you know, by other sexes and other race. And my main point in the book is that there can be no opposites, no opposite sexes, if we actually have always had six or more sexes operative in this country. So due to the US this race, the opposite it's like a phantom concept. I would say nobody lives in it. And yet of course it's had consequences, you know, to put it mildly, you know, with this country's dealing with race for your audience that may switchables, sort of, right? The wordings would kill the Indian, save the man. So according to this thinking, the Native man is not a man. for Native women's future was said to be they're being killed in spirit and in culture, and that they would have to be killing men and women, chilling. And yet, of course, we know so this point is that the game was rigged, because failed assimilation was nearly guaranteed for Native folks. Due to skin color and graduation rates, most kids were not graduating from school. Native men and women, and thus became failed opposites in the eyes of whites. So in a sense, as I like to say, will my true opposite please stand up? Because I don't know who my true opposite would be if I take racial history seriously in this country as I think we should. So that's what i say um, on the point about race. And money, I'll just say a little thing, and then you can see where you want to take it. You know, if you think about money, right, think about the things that you buy, the things you wear, the arrangement of your hair, the toys you buy for children, all of these things shape our gender or how we refuse it. And that's why I look at things like clothing in my book, and, and not to give too much away, but if you read the book, you're going to understand how white men are now less afraid of their pants, and why it's less certain that our clothes rehearse our genitals. And much more I could say about that too. But money is obviously such a major part of our gender, so much of what we consume and buy is attached to actually performing our gender.
0: Yeah, I, I, those both are both a fascinating place. Let's jump back for a second to race. There's a fascinating picture that's in, in, in your YouTube video that, um, um uh, Peter Bermuda made with you. And, and I think it's, it's, it's this little Indian, uh, Native American child. And yes. its, it's, uh, yes. uh it's native Mm -hmm, outfit mm -hmm. um with with long hair Mm -hmm. long braided hair um uh, on the left and then on the right is a is a child of the same age looks very similar um but in in facial features Mm -hmm. but but it's it's a child in a a suit um body posture completely different um and 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 that goes back to what you we were just talking about uh, the boarding yes. schools uh, about because uh, if you look at the child on the left, there's and, and this was actually sort of the background to my question. There's no re- no way to really tell is this quote unquote a boy right. or a girl. Right. Uh, and on the right, it's very clear if we if we look at it through the lens of our cultural assumptions that
1: this is supposed to be a, a, a child who's a, who's a boy, a yes. male child. Yes. And I think, Johanna, you're putting your finger right on it, that gender norms in our country have been white norms, right? The way that we think about the categories man and woman and who fits them have been very much according to white normalizations, which is exactly why I say, um, just factually, we haven't had two sexes, right? If If we have these white norms, then we can see how they were never fitting People coming from other places and coming from other countries, right? And yet the way that we try to slot people of color into these norms and then point out how they were failing gender norms, even though the gender norms were already set to be a kind of white norm that, you know, as I say, guaranteed a failed assimilation to normality. So I think you put your finger just on it with the example that you just gave with the photograph.
0: On the topic of, of money uh, and and in this sort of a wider sense, economics, um, there, there's a lot to be gained, isn't there? As you said, from 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 slotting people into these gender mm-hmm. slots, um, because um, you know. If, well, you already described it—toys and clothes mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. all of that. But I think it's it's a broader subject than that, right? And and part of it mm-hmm. has to do with uh, with women's role in in the economy or or female persons' role in the economy.
1: Absolutely. So one of the things I talk about in my book is a great. Uh, as- from the 1970s by Gail Rubin, where she's really talking about marriage. And the book is called The Traffic... I mean, the essay is called The Traffic in Women. And it was one of those early feminist essays that produced a lot of aha moments, which is to say... She was the anthropology behind marriage, right? and even just in sort of, you know, wedding ceremonies in the U.S., right, the father walking the bride down the aisle to give her to the groom, you know, the language that we used to have, who gives this man, away. right, you have to, to put give put her, her away, away. Mm-hmm. Um, and asking for a hand in marriage, all of that. And of course, what was so profound about that is the way in which a woman was part of a gift exchange right, between men of different families. And again, that still was very much alive at the time that Gail Rubin was writing, and even in some cases now, that marriage is what's making a kind of connection between two different families. And it's not too much to say that particularly in that time period, that when men were marrying men through marrying women, if you want to think of it that What Gail Rubin points out, which goes to your point right now, is the way in which sort of economic relationships were set up, right, in the 1950s, still very much through the 70s and 80s, Of the notion of a woman staying at home to do this domestic labor so the man could be in the world pursuing professional ideals or doing manual labor and it was that gendering of labor the gender division of labor that gail rubin says almost would have forced a type of heterosexuality that the smallest economic unit would be the marital bond one man one woman so the question of economic relations, you know, which I'm sure your next guest talking about feminism, how could we miss that, right? The ways that the category woman has been positioned to the category of man economically still not making as much as men. And then, of course, all the differentiations for Black women, Latinx women, Asian women as well.
0: Do you think the pandemic and, and the fact that, that um, so many parents but especially women you know are, are staying home and, and 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 doing more of the child care that you know that that you till before the pandemic was was done in child care um, but is now happening at home again mm-hmm. um, do you think that 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 is influencing how we view the role of women in our
1: society? Yes, I think it's it's sort of helping to reveal, talk about those uh, gender reveals, it's helping to reveal something that we know to be true. And I I think uh, any person who calls themselves a woman listening to this will recognize, right, the weird way in which women have had to be a kind of man plus a woman, if you want to think about it that way, right? Doing lots of particular forms Mm -hmm. of labor, often as professional women, into the, the day, and then coming home and making the meal and cleaning the dishes and checking up on the kids. And you know, even now, still surveys about domestic labor point to still significant differences between people called men and people called women on that front of domestic labor. So I think through the pandemic, many women who are in very important professional jobs, there they ended up at home again, right? And supervising their children on Zoom and doing sort of intensified domestic labor. That was revealing once again this history that we all know to be true of women sort of being asked to do a particular type of labor that was not compensated by a wage right when you're doing domestic labor in your home nobody is directly paying you for that work that's going on so yes i think the pandemic has revealed many of those old gender norms uh, that sort of us uh, feminist affirmative people,
0: and the interesting part about that is that even though men and women both stayed home during the pandemic, it was still said that people were women who shouldered
1: most of the most of the work even yes. at
0: home when both of them were home.
1: Yes, absolutely. And here's again where race comes to the fore in a really interesting way. I think sometimes when early feminists were talking about women's problem was sort of being imprisoned in the home. A lot of that, of course, made sense to white suburban women. But many women of color pointed out they were not imprisoned in their homes. They were often out in the world doing forms of domestic labor in other people's houses, doing manual forms of labor, right? So that the sort of labor histories of women of color and white women were sometimes vastly different. And that's why early feminism was rightly critiqued for being too white in its perspectives and its address.
0: Yeah, even the word feminism. This is interesting. This is where I almost wish I had I had both both of my guests today in the same in the same <laughs> because after reading your book, I, I my whole idea of of my whole concept of feminism
1: is changing. Um, yes, it's a really interesting and difficult question to say you know, what are we asking for? So, of course, one of the things we're asking for is people called women and people called men would be paid the same work, (laughs) paid the same wage for, for the work that they do. So some of the things we know what we're asking for. But in other words, are we trying to equalize the terms man and woman? But if we're equalizing those terms, then why do we even need those terms anymore? What are they marking if they're completely equal, right? Or are we trying to empower that term woman? I could see the logic of that, right? But then if we're trying to empower that term woman, it's always locked in dynamic tension with the term man. So where is that taking us? Or should we, as my book sort of implies, the notion of gender, certainly beyond the terms man and woman, as many of us who you know identify as non-binary or gender queer are doing, would that take us to a new place? Or should we try to reveal the comedy of gender as, say, somebody like Little Nas X is doing so brilliantly in the public sphere? It's not always so easy anymore to say what we're asking for as feminists. And I do consider myself, you know, a feminist. As As I started to say, some things we know that we are asking for, but when it comes to the very terms and their relation to each other, what is our best feminist move, if you want to put it that way? I'd like to take a moment to let our listeners
0: know that you are listening to uh, Wild Oak Living here on in Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. This is Johanna Wild Oak. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m., and it's all about sustainability and building community in Mendocino County and beyond. And today, my guest is Catherine Bond Stockton. She's the author of a book called Genders. And she is Distinguished Professor of English and Inaugural Dean of the School for Cultural and Social Transformation at the University of Utah. And we are talking about genders, sex, and, and the race, and money, and all the, all the topics associated with this very fascinating uh, concept. Um, uh, Catherine, my, my next guest hasn't joined us yet. Are you able to go a bit Yes, longer? for sure
1: absolutely
0: wonderful okay wonderful so we'll just go until I either hear from my other guest or until she joins us perfect um, that would be great okay um, so one of the things that, that I'm learning just just from talking with you uh, it, it's so in, it's so interesting um, this whole this whole concept of men and women and 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 as you said, um, you know, in in a wider sense, white men, white women, black men, black women, native women, native men. But but if you reduce it, if you boil it down to the whole concept of men and women, I mean, we're already in this conversation using the term people we call
1: women. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) People we call men. Yes. Where where is that going to lead us? Yes, I think, you know, we again are already here happily. Um, as I always try to point out, you know, issues of trans life and non-binary life and gender career life have been going on for a very long time. It's just that happily now I guess, you know, the general public is, is thinking and talking more in these terms. But I think the problem for the terms man and woman is the way that we have locked them into a scheme of opposites, right? And that's where so much of the harm comes. First of all, making that decision for a child at birth, which is going to affect them dramatically. That's one problem. But maybe the last thing I'll say, since I see your your guest is here, it's not just that we lower a cone over the child and then kind of leave it up to that person to get this massive cone off of them, but you could also say that we cut babies in half when we sex them as boy or girl. It's almost as if we're making them half a human being, since we're conceiving of these sexes as opposites of each other, you know, in some way. And that's, of course, supposedly why heterosexuality was deemed natural. This notion that men and women were thought to be seeking their missing half and thus becoming whole through marriage or sex. But notice how complicated and difficult that idea is and why feminists wanted to push back against that. Because if we're saying that women are opposites of men, men were always getting the attributes of human being. And then what did that mean for women, right? The sort of human... Uh, attributes that men were getting in their definition, women literally had to become sort of inhuman forms. As has often, you know, been pointed out, you know, Madonnas were witches, if you want to put it that way. So there's been tremendous harm in this idea. And if you think about when you sex your child at birth, am I cutting them in half, making them half a human being? That might be an interesting question. I say this gently and tenderly to raise to yourself.
0: Maybe we'll maybe we'll get to a point where, you know, uh, a, a child, a child will will not will not be parents can't sex children until they're what, like 14 or something.
1: Right, right. And children may go through many different words along the way. And I celebrate that journey. I don't see why we have to be so committed to a notion of one word that must remain stable and stable in its meanings. Again, feminists were always brilliant at taking issue with that. So something tells me your next guest will take you into the next important corridors for all of that thought.
0: Well, thank you so much, Catherine von Stockton, uh, author of the book Genders. Do you want to offer some website or contact information how people might get your book and find out more about your work?
1: Yes, I'd be happy to. You can find me at www.katherinebondstockton.com. And I'm so grateful, Johanna, to be with you today.
0: And Catherine is spelled K-A-T-H-R-Y-N. So Catherine Bond Stockton. Bond as in James Bond and Stockton as in the California town of Stockton.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. The new bond is coming. I think we already saw that.
0: Well, thank you so much, Catherine. This has been a famous, uh, uh, I mean, a fascinating, a fascinating conversation. Maybe it'll be famous someday. Hope, hopefully, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning and all the best with your book and with your work. Thank you. Thank you again. Be well. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye. You are tuned to Wild Oak Living. And this is Johanna Weldoch, and we are now uh, going to just ever so slightly shift gears and be joined by Andrea Press, and Andrea Press is the author of a book called Media-Ready Feminism and Everyday Sexism, How U.S. Audiences Create Meaning Across Platforms, and uh, Andrea Press is the William R. Keenan Prof, uh, Professor of Media Studies and Sociology at the University of Virginia. Her books include The Routledge Ru- the Handbook of Contemporary Feminism, uh, and also, uh, which is co edited by, by Tasha Oren. And I'm ha- happy and honored to welcome you, Andrea, to Wildlife Living. Thank you for joining us this morning. Well, thank you so
2: much for having me.
0: We've been turning uh we've been turning uh, our video off because our audio connection is kind of spotty so otherwise otherwise it'd be great to to see you on screen in addition to talking with you. I think oh. it's better it's better that way since we're on radio. Yeah. Uh,
2: yes.
0: Yeah. So uh thank you so much again for joining us uh I have to tell you, um, in in reading your book and also um, sort of thinking about the concepts that you present, I found myself at a, at a slight disadvantage as somebody who does not watch much television. In fact, I haven't had a television in in twenty years, and so some of the references that you talk about in your book, um, you know, I had to sort of read up on uh, to to
1: familiarize
0: myself with <laughs> them. <laughs> so, but it was a fascinating a fascinating journey. But before so. With that as a background, you know, if I if I miss a cultural a television cultural reference, that's by my way of explaining why that might happen. Um, but I'd like to start out by asking you, how did you, uh, how did what inspired you to write this book, and how did you get into into this
2: work? Well, I uh, I was very perplexed by a phenomenon that I was observing in my everyday life which is often how I begin my projects and I noticed that people I knew were not able to process their experiences of everyday sexism and discrimination and harassment because I felt they weren't being given a language to help them do that. Uh, And one of the ways we garner our collective languages is through the media. As a media scholar, I do believe the media are very important for helping us see the world in a certain way, for giving us frameworks to process our experiences so i wondered why people were not able to identify sexism that they experienced and i started to look at the way across platforms media conceptualized feminism and sexism and that led to the studies that make up this book
0: the uh, you use you use um as as i alluded to earlier you use um several uh so recent uh m- um television and and um uh an online um i don't know how to say them uh, like like film films television platforms. yeah Platform platforms right platforms. Yeah. <laughs> the up, the online <laughs> yeah. online encyclopedia yeah exactly yeah. Um, and yes that's not that's not the only thing in, in your book but but uh, that's you used used um, for example you illustrate uh, misogyny by by talking about the game of, of thrones and um, you talk about uh, the uh, tinder as an example for you know the the kind of sexism in, in that 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 it that it enables it, it's in, I don't it, there's there's a lot to talk about and and we only have about seventeen minutes left so I, I actually would like to leave it up to you to 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 decide which one of the many concepts that you illustrate in your book we want to delve into because um, we certainly won't have time to talk about all of them where would you like to
2: go you know Game of Thrones is very interesting because it was interpreted by critics and also by audiences as both very feminist because it had a lot of very strong women characters it had rulers who were women uh but also very sexist because there was an enormous amount uh even for popular television of sexual violence shown and the women tended to be hypersexualized even in a media environment that does uh sexualize women as a matter of course and so we wondered how audience members received these conflicting representations that women were powerful yet they were hypersexualized and violence against women was ubiquitous and we wondered how could they process such conflicting ideas and what did this mean for the way they processed events in their lives and so we found that viewers actually ignored to a large degree the hypersexualization and the violence they seemed rather used to these norms and they did tend to focus more on the images of strength. There were also uh, some very innovative uh, images of women as not entirely cisgendered, women with uh, a lot of masculine characteristics, warriors, hunters, women uh, with a lot of power. And that made an impression on viewers. They were fans of these non cisgendered women and women with alternative sexualities in the way the show represented people. So there were moments of liberation. There were moments that were very progressive on a show that was also very sexist. And in a way, this parallels women's lives today. I was just thinking that, yeah, exactly. We have a lot of opportunities for advancement that are relatively new over the past several decades for women in our society who have been blocked in their advancement in a lot of ways and harassed and um, limited in what they can achieve. And many of those limitations, with the help of the feminist activist movements have been lifted yet we still experience barriers what scholars call the glass ceilings in many fields and ubiquitous harassment as the me too movement brought to light and we uh francesca tripoti who co-authored this book with me we are extremely heartened to see a national conversation beginning around issues of sexual harassment and assault. And I think that is the beginning of being able to uh, limit these experiences that unfortunately affect many women in our culture
0: one of the other concepts that that you that you use to illustrate uh, um, the points that you're making in the book is is the, the the is tinder and the role of women on tinder and how it how it actually um, sort of reinforces structural sexism as opposed to offering a platform for women to to be you know to act in a more in a more liberated manner I wonder if yeah. you can talk about Yes,
2: thank you for bringing that up. Tinder was a very interesting case study because, of course, dating apps have become more and more ubiquitous in uh, the dating world. And we wondered what women's experiences uh, using these apps was. And what we found there and overall, actually, in dating was were limits to people's ability to actively consent to sexual activity and tinder reinforced that and so uh what we saw with tinder was that women would swipe right which is the way you indicate interest in a meetup but when you swiped right and you engaged in a meetup it was very difficult not to consent to sexual activity there was an underlying assumption of implicit consent even when women did not want to offer consent and that was problematic we thought there was something in the structure of this dating app that undermined our ability to offer active consent to sexual activity. And that was a problem. And this uh, mediated context for dating that we are experiencing increasingly in 2022 because um, many, a high percentage of daters meet online now, and that has risen dramatically over the last... Five years Uh,
0: every age not just young people but basically every age
2: every age exactly older as well as younger daters and there is also a trend for uh, women initiated divorces in women over age 60 so we're seeing an increasing number of these women uh, in online dating contexts so it's, it's important. It's a large percentage of people who are dating will be affected by the structure of online dating.
0: One of the thoughts that came up uh, as I was talking with uh, Catherine von Stockton uh, before in the interview that preceded yours, uh, you know, we found ourselves referring to people. Um, People we call men and people we call women, and and it occurred to me what what the concept of feminism means in this age where it it appears that 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 gender fluidity and is 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 a more is becoming a more prominent concept at least among the very the very young you know the the current people who are now in their teens and twenties. Um, And I'm wondering how you see the whole concept of feminism and with it, the whole media portrayal of of people we call women. Yeah, our language Language. has lagged. Language (laughs) and and
2: media portrayal. How how do you see that evolving in in reference to feminism? You know, I caught the tail end of Catherine Stockton's interview. It's a very exciting time that we are living in when we're interested in gender studies. And I am extremely heartened to see younger people Creating more fluid categories of gender identity and not actually categorizing people the way oldsters might categorize them with fixed cisgendered identities that carry a lot of baggage with them. I mean, it's a wonderful and exciting time. That said, we. are still seeing as sociologists doing analyses of the workplace, analyses of family lives, analyses of dating, analyses of online encyclopedias. We're still seeing an enormous amount of gender discrimination. And I think non cisgendered individuals uh, run into that in spades discrimination against them for not stating a recognizable gender identity, since those in power do tend to be older rather than younger and products of a time when gender identities were thought to be more conventional and more fixed. And I think we need activism we, we don't have to call it feminist activism. We can call it something else. But we need activism to address discrimination uh, on gender lines. And that is not going to go away. In fact, our need for activism will probably increase as our challenges to gender-fixed gender identities become more pronounced.
0: I wonder, I wonder how that... Um... I wonder about the tension between that movement and we talked about that with Catherine, too, and the whole gender reveal thing and the whole, um, you know, on on the one hand, you know, when you walk through town with a baby carriage, everybody wants to know if it's a boy or a girl. And I told Catherine, <laughs> even when I walk my dog, everybody wants to know is it a boy or a girl. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and on the other hand, this, this, this gender fluidity that we're seeing that we just talked about, it's an interesting tension, isn't it?
2: It is, it is, well, it's a massive social change. And it is a privilege to be watching this change become so rapid and so uh, widespread. I, I actually feel that young people today are going to be living in a totally new world around categories of gender. And it is a wondrous thing to behold. You know, this is how social change happens. Exactly. And I think we do have to keep a finger on the pulse of discrimination and not lose sight of the fact that we still need to work for gender equity.
0: And one interesting thing that you state in, in the last chapter of your book, The Way Forward Towards Toward a More Inclusive Future, um and is is you know what 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 are sort of the, the priorities of 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 feminism and, and what does it represent on the one hand you know you you talk about work life balance as a being a very important concept but that may not be as such an important concept as uh, you know to somebody who for whom income inequality or a lack of affordable child care or medical care or domestic violence or access to education um, all of those things that are that are you know that reflect some of the more uh, uh, basic inequities and needs that still need to be addressed um, before we can before we can get to work life balance. Well, I um, think
2: all of those issues are part of work life balance. I mean, right. they're That's all right. part of women's lives that mitigate yeah. against them having safe, happy, successful lives where their basic needs are. Uh, provided for and where they're able to avoid all levels of violence i mean work-life balance is not something just wealthy people pursue work-life balance That's is something we can't avoid we all have lives and we all it, for the most part uh unless we're born wealthy for the most part we all have to work in those lives right. very few people are born wealthy enough to
0: escape that one, yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. That, uh, that you know that showed that showed up one one of my blind spots uh, in this in the in the sense that you know I I, I had sort of separated sort of this uh, work life balance thing from 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 all the other uh, needs and inequities that that you describe in terms of what the focus of feminism. Is or whatever feminism
2: evolves into. Is, that yeah. was one of our main points in the book, that popular media tend to present work life balance as uh, something that wealthy people pursue. You mm-hmm. know, it tends to present it uh, as it just tends to picture wealthier upper middle class. Middle-class people pursuing work-life balance, and it tends to ignore the problems of those less affluent, less educated, less privileged. And that was one of the issues we discuss in our introduction when we talk about the Me Too movement. You know, it is women in low-wage work that have the fewest resources to turn to to combat harassment and assault that they experience in the workplace. And many of them experience harassment and assault in the workplace. But these are the women least able to afford losing their jobs. Um, Many support this. Many of them have fewer alternatives in the workplace. And so the media tend not to want to address the problems of those women. They would rather talk about uh, beautiful actresses trying to get lead roles in Hollywood films. And, of course, they're experiencing assault and discrimination and harassment as well, as we all learned in media coverage of that movement. But it didn't really extend far enough to encompass the problems of so many less privileged women who are faced with so many more dire conditions really in their lives.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank thank you for for pointing that out. That that is that is interesting. Um, it makes I guess it makes for less attractive quote unquote media coverage.
2: Well, it's not media ready. So one of the things we talk about in the book is this concept of media-ready feminism. The media would much rather discuss white, cisgendered, affluent women and really has a bias toward representing those women, uh, preferably women who look Uh, like Hollywood stars, you know, or have Hollywood-level glamour uh, as media define it. And we uh, see that that kind of bias, it has an impact on society. It impacts our categories for thinking about feminist issues, like work-family balance, or like sexual harassment. And then we can separate them From our own more ordinary lives and we don't see how these issues uh, are important for us as well and that feminist activism would be important for us achieving equity in a series of issues that women experience in the course of their lives.
0: Andrea, we are unfortunately up to the, uh, we have less than a minute left on the clock. I just want to reiterate that we're talking to Andrea Press, uh, who together with Francesca Tripodi wrote a book called Media Ready Feminism and Everyday Sexism. Where can people go to your website to find out more
2: and get back? They can go to com. And they can purchase our book on Amazon or on the SUNY State University of New York Press website. It's called Media Ready Feminism and Everyday Sexism. And uh, I am interim chair of the media studies department at University of Fall, if you are interested in contacting me about the book. Thank
0: you so much. I don't. I, I hope we're still on the air for me to say to thank you for being on Wildlife Living this morning, and tune in two weeks from today at nine o'clock for another edition of Wildlife Living. Thanks for listening.
2: This podcast was produced by KZyx FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, local community radio from Mendocino County, California. If you enjoyed the program and you'd like to hear more, in Northern California you can tune in anytime to KZYX at 90.7 FM in Philo, KZYZ at 91.5 FM in Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. If you're listening to this podcast from further away, we also stream live 24 hours a day at kzyx.org, where you can hear our eclectic range of locally produced music, public affairs and news, along with daily state and national news programs and breaking news. You can also find out how to become a member to keep KZYX on the air. Thank you for listening.